This week on Thinking Biblically, Rod Wilson is back. He's just written a new book, and we're going to be looking at how this on-the-surface, nice, simple book is actually power-packed, full of complexity. Well, we really have a good time talking about it. Welcome back to Thinking Biblically. My name is Alan Gilman. Thinking Biblically is a podcast dedicated to exploring how all Scripture speaks to all of life. Before I introduce this week's guest, I want to remind everyone to please subscribe and comment, and you can always email me at comments at thinkingbiblically.org. Well, Rod Wilson has been on the show before, um, and um, I'm thrilled to have him back. Uh, he is, has worked as a psychologist, served as a pastor in three different churches, and has held multiple roles in theological education, including president of Regent College in Vancouver from 2000 to 2015. Rod currently works with Lumara, is that how I say it? Lumara, Grief and Bereavement Care Society, the Society of Christian Schools in British Columbia, Interest Center for Theological Schools, and Arasha, a Christian environmental organization. And you might know that I recently had Rick Faw, the program director of Arosha, Arasha, keep doing that, uh, on Thinking Biblically. You might want to check that out. Rod maintains an international teaching and mentoring ministry and is the author of several books, including Keeping Faith in Fundraising with Peter Harris and two books on anger, which was our topic last time, both written with Glenn Taylor. They're called Helping Angry People and Exploring Your Anger. His new book, Thank You, I'm Sorry, Tell Me More, is what we're going to be discussing today. Welcome back, Rod. Thank you, Alan. It's always good to be with you, whether privately or publicly. Well, that, you know, this is the second time you're on, and so I was going to mention everybody, to everybody, I guess you survived that enough, or you enjoy the punishment, which in case you'd have another book to write. <laughs> well, that's where the I'm sorry part factors in. Okay, which we will get to, I'm sure. Good. Um, yeah, so I've, I've really appreciated how I'm not only willing to come on the show, but um, you've uh, basically been following the podcast and we've been interacting about it. And in fact, I dedicated a, a whole um, a whole show to some critiques that you had, or or I understood them to be critiques, and then I went over all of them. And, and I really, really do appreciate that. And it's also an opportunity, again, to remind people, feel free to send in your comments and, and critiques. Um, I was actually at an unusual meeting of, of believers last night. Um, and um, there was a bit of a panel discussion and people were sitting around and, and there was some discussion. And there was a level of respectful disagreement in that room that I don't know if I've ever experienced. And you probably, we could talk about that subject. Um, but, you know, what you're saying in this in this book are foundational principles that would help us to communicate with each other far better than than we have up to this point. Would you agree? I would agree. Yeah, I think we've we've lost uh, in so many ways. We've lost the ability to converse with one another, and particularly if we disagree, it almost seems like conversing is challenging. But then it's even more challenging if we don't agree with the person. Uh, which makes this moment in time uh, filled with great tension. Right, and, it's, and especially now with the polarization of, 
of conversation. We hear things such, you know, speech as violence and, and some of these kind of ways of talking about disagreement that uh, is not helpful or it's not healthy or helpful. No, it's not. And I think it drives a lot of us into silence too. Like we're almost afraid to speak. Uh, you don't know what you're going to receive when you do. Uh, so we tend to go silent, which is not exactly a good Christian engagement in contemporary culture. Yeah. And, you know, so from, you know, the culture that I come from, the Jewish culture, if anything, we often, it's not always true. There are, you know, there are many Jewish people that feel severely shut down and don't feel that they have a voice, but um, it's actually very deeply embedded and probably in, um, in study of Talmud, which I myself have never done, but in the Talmudic study in the, what's called the yeshiva, the you know, Jewish theological school, the invitation to, to vigorously discuss over the texts and the invitation to disagree in order to learn is, is really part of the culture. And, and I've, I've uh, understood that in, in Israel, which is, has been called the, the, uh, the startup country, one of the reasons why the, there's such a uh, successful entrepreneurial spirit is because of the expectation that everyone in the company is going to speak up and they're going to address issues and they're going to get those issues worked out, which is really the only pathway to success. Yeah. And it's interesting, you know, the biblical word shalom, um, peace, is not a, it's not a focus on, you know, being quiet and not expressing yourself, or it's not a focus on only talk to those who agree with you. It's actually that in the engagement with the other, we're flourishing. We're actually, we're much better off uh, with deep engagement with the other than we are going passive or going quiet or only seeking agreement. Um, so I think we're missing a lot of flourishing relationally right now. And, and it's so needed, as you said, Alan, with the polarization in the culture. If we don't know how to talk to one another, it almost doesn't matter what we're talking about because we don't know how to do the how. Right. Now, of course, there is destructive speech speech is very powerful, how much it relates to the fact that God created the world with speech yeah. and that he's given human beings made in his image speech. We know how one kind word, you know, will say to somebody, oh, you made my day. And that's yeah. a, that's a real thing. And yeah. uh, also I could, you know, just off the top of my head, thinking of the times I've had a conversation with some, somebody and just one little comment can change so much for the better as well as you know for the worse yeah yeah absolutely no i totally agree with you and it's the, just the, the proverbs has this image that the tongue uh, is an invitation to life or to death and it, it really is that is that powerful yeah. but then it gets misinterpreted by some to mean that disagreement in and of itself is is a problem I remember uh, in discussion with some people, it was a le some leader, a leaders group, and we were trying to deal with some conflict. And I brought up the story of Paul and Barnabas having a difference of opinion and going separate ways in the book of Acts. And, you know, whether that was the best thing to do, the right thing to do, but this person got really, really angry. I don't want to get into that other topic that we talked about last time, but they got really, really angry not because 
of them, their inability to resolve, but because they conflicted at all. And I was around that time, I remember it was many years ago when I was, I was going through a bit of a crisis with this kind of issue, like uh, the ability to, to resolve problems. And a, and a friend of ours in discussing this actually said that in their household where she, where she grew up, conflict wasn't allowed. Yeah, and I think, you know, you're onto something important there that I think a lot of the reason for this is because people have only seen disrespectful disagreement and have never seen healthy disagreement. So if you haven't had it modeled for you, uh, it creates fear. So I think for a lot of people, when disagreement comes up, they're immediately fearful and they flee. They don't want to engage. Um, and then people have grown up in a home where conflict was inherently bad they have no model at all. It's just to go silent. Uh, and it's interesting in the marriage literature, you know, you would think that the presence or absence of conflict would uh, predict divorce, but actually a better predictor of divorce is not the amount of conflict, but the amount of respect present in the conflict. And I think in our close relationships, when we, when we don't respect the other person, uh, that's where conflict becomes very damaging. But if there is a respectful attitude towards the other, you can really engage in a toe-to-toe -to -toe conflict with significant disagreement. So I think we're going to have to come back to this topic because it is so important. And even that little, we'll call it a teaser that you just gave about conflict not being, or lack thereof, isn't the indicator of, 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 of trouble in a marriage. Um, and then would, would you... I'm putting you a little on the spot. Would you, do you have some tools in your toolbox about how to conflict better? Well, I think, you know, part of this book, Alan, I think is a little bit tied into this. I mean, I don't talk explicitly about conflict in the book, but I think if you have the foundation of bringing an attitude of gratitude and remorse and care to your relationship, then you're willing to engage in conflict with that as the underlying foundation. Um, so yeah, I would say in some ways, I mean, it's a little bit indirect, but I think in some ways this book is a foundation for doing conflict well. Okay, I'm gonna, I'm still gonna prod you on this one and see if maybe we can come back another, have you come back another time and, and deal with conflict it, yeah. itself. And yeah. give me a little more time to think about it. And maybe we'll disagree. <laughs> And we could show people, we could show people how it's done. Yeah. <laughs> and so anyway, back to this, whoops, not that way, this way. <laughs> so this book, I, I don't know how people can tell, but it's, it's, it's a, I would call it a small format book. Yeah. It's, you know, it's because it's small, it looks a little thick, but it's, it's only, um, about 186 pages. If you read all the things, there's a bit, would you say, you don't have to read that bit. And there's other things in here at the end. But it's you know it's it's not a it's not a big book, and it's it's pretty. That's a pretty cover, and it's unassuming. We had the privilege of of hearing you here in Ottawa several years ago at the National Prayer Breakfast, and I remember that uh, you were talking on on this topic, and there were little business looking cards uh, on the table at our spots that had "Thank you, I'm sorry, tell me more," and I'm sorry I don't remember all the details. But I remember it was a nice talk about how if we practice these things, then we help make the world a better place. Is that the kind of gist? 
It is. At the time? Yeah. So then I remember you told me the book was coming out and uh, eventually I thought, oh, it'd be good to have you back on the podcast. We talk about the book. I got the book. I started to read the book and I was really surprised because it's, I, I wouldn't use nice as the best way to describe this power packed book. And it fools you even more because um, there's about 30 vignettes, little stories um, in each to cover each of these three sayings. Um, each, each of the three chapters or sections begins with an intro to the, the saying, the principle. And then there are 20, about three page stories uh, that talk about um, each of those. Um, there's a pause and reflect at the end of each one. You've got some discussion questions at the end, but I found the book powerful, not, it, you know, nice is an overused word anyway, um, but you really get into some, some real heartfelt, personal, sometimes you get really personal uh, in, in the things that you share. And I found it extremely helpful and very challenging. Like some, some of them, some of the, um, the 60 stories um, in themselves could be a book. You're nodding. I am. I'm, I'm listening to you summarize. <laughs> <laughs> so tell me the truth. Did you know how power packed these stories were, or did you actually think you're telling nice stories? <laughs> well, a great question. I mean, I, among the various genres of biblical literature, one of the genre that intrigues me the most is the wisdom literature. Uh, so I find, you know, Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon to be really interesting literature uh, within the biblical canon, because it comes at truth with a very different trajectory than, say, the epistles or Torah or the Gospels, uh, all of which is under God's authority. So I don't think there's any difference in authority. But I love the the earthiness of the wisdom literature. Like sometimes I read the wisdom literature and I think, ooh, that's a little personal or a little close to home or uh, and the metaphors and the images, you know, the ringing of the nose bringeth blood. You know, it's like, wow, that's in the Bible. Um, so I love that literature. And it's a it's a contemplative literature in, I mean, look, the psalmist, of course, uses that term selah, which has been translated in various ways. But one of the ways it's translated is pause and reflect. And so there's this little vignette and then pause and reflect. And I thought, I'm not going to be declarative and say, I'm writing wisdom literature, but that was really what informed the book. And you and I have talked before about the power of narrative. And I think story really hits people way more personally than conceptual theoretical things. So I thought story would be a good foundation for writing the book uh, because I've learned probably most of what I've learned through the biblical story and then through my own story and other people's stories. So I have been quite taken aback with the impact. I mean, a number of people use simple and complex as the way to look at the book. When they first read it or first see it, they think, oh, it's about manners. You know, teach your children to say thank you. I'm sorry. Tell me more. 
Then they start reading it and realize this is kind of simple, but then they start reflecting and realize, woo, this is a bit complex and it's a little deeper than it appears. And I'm really, really concerned that Christians spend too much time talking to themselves and each other rather than talking into the culture. And so I think this is a need in the culture that we as Christians offer biblical truth in a way that's a little bit disarming and may not be covert or may not be overt, maybe a little more covert in its style. Um, and so that's the exciting thing for me. Like I've given one to everyone in our townhouse complex and it's fascinating the conversations I'm having right now with people who say, look, I'm not religious at all, but your book's really interesting me. And I, I'm viewing the world and faith a little differently as a result of reading this. So that for me is really exciting. So I think you're onto something there. Your word nice, probably the parallel would be the word simple. It looks simple, but I don't think it is. Yeah, so there's a couple of things that, that come out of this. And I hope I don't forget the first one that I want to talk about second. Um, so the first one uh, is how your this book, and it's in, intentionally so, and you comment you comment in the book, is for everyone. Yeah. We w wouldn't call this a religious book, right? No. No. It's not a theology book. No. It's it is, right. but it isn't. Right. Well, the thing is, and this is going to lead into the, the 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 second thing i want to talk about which is 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 something that you and i've talked about privately not not in the podcast and that is what constitutes thinking biblically yeah um and so you know i would say this book is biblical because it expresses truth reality um accurately and effectively mm. um so while there's more to life than what's in your book, I hope that doesn't disappoint you. There's more to life than th what's in your book, but without what you're sharing, we're not we're not getting what God teaches us in His Word, yeah. right? So these yeah. are essential principles of life, and the essential principles of life from a biblical perspective is not just for the religious person, the believer, the Christian. It is for everyone. Right? But sadly, often the way we explain these things doesn't sound like it's for everyone. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, but you're yeah. trying. So I would say you're doing here what you're fulfilling a biblical intention. Yeah. And then, so then going to what you're saying about the wisdom literature and this covert kind of thing. Um, I would say most of the Bible is is expressing itself in a, it's in, in a narrative framework. So even when we get to the, you're talking about the epistles, so Paul's letters or any of the of the letters, um, they're not theological treatises in the same way as we might read an academic paper today or a commentary. Yeah. These are real life these are paul's writing to real life people in a real life context in a real life place dealing with real life problems and then what we try to do is understand first what in the world he's talking about to these people and then seeing how what the implications are for uh for people today 
sadly, and I, I'm trying to figure out how to get away from this. So I believe so much in this, in this narrative structure, but then I end up talking about it in this, like, uh, is a presuppositional sort of way in this very yeah. kind of reasoned expl yeah. explain, which is not what you do in this way. You don't explain in the book. You, you, you tell. Yeah. I think that what they say today, you show. Is that the yeah. right? I, I, instead yeah. of telling, you're actually showing by giving yeah. people stories, which is how most of the compelling, powerful messages are being conveyed and have always been conveyed. And yeah. so you know, and. An, an ad for a, a product is often a story and it draws the potential consumer into the story. And if the consumer connects with the story, then, um, you know, maybe they're going to buy the product. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think you've captured that well, Alan. And I, and I think the, the nice thing with story, and this is where the biblical story to me is so appealing. It doesn't have the triumphalism and the positivity of so much of the Christian faith we see right now in the culture or in the church. I think there, there are people who just work on the assumption that if it's Christian, it's positive. And if it's Christian, they're lovely stories that have a great ending. But the nice thing with narrative, I mean, the biblical narrative is very much characterized by this. It also tells stories that aren't so nice and aren't so pretty and aren't so good. So some of the stories in my book make me look kind of silly or immature or inappropriate. Um, but to me, that is part of the Christian life. Like being immature and inappropriate is also the way I live at times and the way you live at times, um, but that's all under God. Uh, so the nice thing with story is it can capture reality as it is. And the other part is that the, the, the God talk part of Christian faith where people feel like unless I'm explicitly talking about God and quoting the Bible, I'm not being Christian, it, they obviously haven't read the Bible carefully. I mean, you read the, the last third of Genesis on the Joseph story. Um, like, God's name is hardly mentioned in all those chapters. Uh, he, it is mentioned, but very infrequently. And if you just took that out of context and gave some of that story, uh, God's name's ver mentioned very rarely in that story. And yet that section of scripture at the end of Genesis is deeply theological, deeply spiritual, but you can't measure, by, measure that by the number of times God's name is used. Um, you've got to reflect on it the right way. And I hope, I hope some people reading this book who are Christian and are theologically astute will recognize this is actually a theology book as well as a story book. So I, I find that one of the, the problems, I've alluded to it already, is there's these categories of thought. And I think that's one of the things that's tripping us up. So uh, even to say, well, okay, these stories actually are theological. Well, it's sort of kind of, it fits the criteria for the category, but actually life isn't lived in these categories. They're, 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 they're false uh, distinctions we're making in our minds, yeah. the, the Bible and, and it's it's too bad because a lot of people go to the Bible thinking that they're going to be um, dealing with these categories when those categories really aren't there. Yeah. Um, do you have a favorite story in the book? In my book? Yeah, in your book. book. <laughs> <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> Want to distinguish my book from the book? Oh, right, right, um, right. Sure. Yeah, I'm yeah. talking about your book here. Your yeah. book. Yeah. 
<laughs> well, I think the one one of the ones that I found the most powerful was when Bev and I were in Florida at a meal in a restaurant, and uh, I love dessert. See the main course as misnamed. I think the main course is simply preparatory for dessert. And so uh, when a waiter or waitress comes to the table after we've had the main course and says, would you like dessert? I always say, is the Pope Catholic? Uh, that's just sort of my line. And most waiters and waitresses just laugh and they give me the dessert menu and I order my dessert. So on this particular occasion, um, the waitress, waitress Kent comes to the table. She was early 20s. And uh, she said, would you, would you like dessert? And I said, is the Pope Catholic? And she said, is he? And I had this moment of, wow, here I am in Florida, Western culture. Here's somebody who honestly doesn't know who the Pope is. And I just said to her, tell me more. And she, I mean, we probably had a 20-minute conversation on religion and Christian faith and Catholicism and the Pope. And she talked about how her, her background, her family experience was bereft of anything Christian or religious. And she said, like, why are you here? And I said, well, I'm at a Christian conference. Oh, what's that? No, no reference points at all. So back in the day, we would have called that an evangelistic moment. But actually, it came from me simply saying, tell me more. Like, it started with humor, is the Pope Catholic, her saying, is he? And me just saying, tell me more. And what God created in that moment was this very profound conversation uh, that I suspect was a chain in her walk towards him. Um, just a small little link along the way. Um, so this is where I find these three phrases really powerful, because when you, when you acknowledge that others impact you, you can say thank you. And when you acknowledge sometimes you impact them negatively, you can say I'm sorry. And when you're curious just about other people and how they're living, you can say tell me more. And all sorts of things emerge. So I wanted to go through the three in order, but I had a particular question about the third one, so we may as well deal with it now since you brought it up in that story that you just told. Yeah. And and that is, so you're the book is about these three principles and that they're very basic and important. And frankly, and maybe it's just me, you, thank you and I'm sorry, I get that. But tell me more. He's like, I, I wouldn't have thought of that to be one of the three, but it seems to be for you in particular, a key one. And obviously I asked you for your favorite story in the book uh, and you brought up a tell me more story. Yeah. So maybe I should say, tell me more about tell me more. Uh, am, am I the only one that wouldn't quickly think that that should be one part of your triad here? Yeah. No, I think that I think it makes sense what you're saying. I mean, my my template for putting these together is that because we are created in relationship, I mean, and I believe that's the way God has created us in it, being created in his image is a relational construct. It's not just an individual construct. So we are we are created to be relational and to connect with one another. And we are God's handiwork. We are God's workmanship. We are God's creation. So conversing with one another and having a curiosity about one another is part of our journey on the planet. So I think there's a care and a curiosity and a stimulation of interaction that needs to characterize us. So 
when I read Jesus and the Gospels, one of the things that really is powerful for me there is, you know, I assume he knows, you know, he's omniscient. I assume he, he knows the thoughts and intents of the heart. But how come these Gospels are so long if he knows it all? And if he knows who's right and wrong, then why aren't they just real brief? Like, I think you could probably cut the Gospels down by 80% if you eliminate all this interaction. So, you know, the rich young ruler comes to him and says, good master, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Like I would have said, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. And he said, why are you calling me good? Like, tell me more. Um, and the dialogue and the interaction uh, in the Gospels that Jesus has suggests to me that this whole desire for conversation, for curiosity, for care of the other... I go to John 4 and the discussion with the Samaritan woman, like the way I'm wired, I like John 3 sort of gets to the point with Nicodemus right away. Like just be born again, like just like just deal with it. And then he comes to the immoral Samaritan woman. And I'm thinking, okay, if you're gonna have a long conversation with somebody, why don't you talk to the religious man, not the immoral Samaritan woman? But he has this long conversation. And some of the best passages on worship in the whole Bible are in this conversation with an unconverted Samaritan woman who's not living morally. And so for me, there's something in that, both my own human curiosity and the way I'm created and my desire to understand the other and the way Jesus related when he didn't need to, like there was no need for conversation. I was on a radio show on the book a while ago and I was talking about this and the guy said, well, what if they're wrong? Like you don't want to have a conversation if they're wrong. It's like, no, that's the point. Of course you want to have a conversation. Like Jesus knew they were all wrong. Why do you talk to any of them? So I think there's something in that care, curiosity, conversation, giving dignity to the story of others that really matters. And I found it really life-changing in terms of the people I'm in relationship with now. So first, uh, on the, the a theological matter, if we can go back to a category, um, I, I would... I, I see Jesus in his earthly life as uh, having given up the rights of divinity and that he, when he knew the thoughts of people that was given to him by yeah. the Father through the Spirit, rather than him actually, like, as if somebody could have asked him who was going to win the World Series in yeah. 2,000 years. Um, yeah. yeah, so I, and you're agreeing. So I, I, I think um, a part... Um, instead of him asking the questions even though he didn't have to, he was actually modeling for us yeah. how to truly engage people. Exactly. And, and now I understand something I didn't really get before, and I, I see where I'm a little tripped up. So we teach our children, say thank you. We teach them, say I'm sorry. And there's also I forgive you, which isn't in the book, but that's something else. Um, but we, we don't teach our children, now say, tell me more. But you're not using tell. Now, thank you and I'm sorry are things we would actually almost say like for, formulas. Yes. But you seem to be using tell me more as, a, as a, a catchphrase to refer to the ways we engage people in conversation. Yeah, that's a, that's a really good point, Alan. I, and I think there's a sense in which those three phrases, thank you, I'm sorry, tell me more, could be taken in a literalistic sense. But even thank you, like if you did something really amazing for me and I just went, 
Alan, like I'm, I'm just like, I'm overwhelmed by what you did. Like, I'm just, I don't know what to say. Like you could say, a, thank you. Yeah. I could say, yeah, <laughs> I could say thank you, but I don't have to say thank you in order to reflect my gratitude. And similarly with, with, I'm sorry. I mean, I think, you know, I talk in the book, there are various bad ways to say, I'm sorry, but I think there's ways to show that you feel terrible for what you have done to the other person without necessarily using those precise terms. But I think you're right. Those, those are a little more uh, consistent or formulaic. Whereas tell me more, I think can be expressed in, in all sorts of ways. Yeah. So what may we explore that a little bit, because to me, and, and we'll get to the other two, because they are so important and they are often neglected, but uh, uh, whether you use the formula, tell me more, I'm still wondering, did you, when, when, uh, the waitress didn't know the Pope was Catholic. Did you actually say, tell me more? I, I have a feeling that's not how the conversation went. You likely inquired so that, and which led to a conversation. Now, yeah. you sound like you're really interested in people. Yeah. Would you say most people are, or is that a, a major, um, like a lack? in human interaction today we talked about not being able to conflict is it do you perceive that there's a lack of interest in other people's lives and that's why we need to encourage them to say tell me more yeah well i think you know as you know in the book what i try to do is talk about these three cultural threads um entitlement and the antidote to that is thank you uh, victimization, and the antidote to that is I'm sorry, and individualism, and the antidote to that is tell me more. I think in, around the 1950s, I think with the social sciences becoming so prevalent and having such an influence, there was a correction, and, and I think an appropriate correction, where the individual was given more value again. There was very much of a communal uh, sort of crowd group orientation. And I think in the 50s, people started to realize that I as an individual matter and count. I'm just talking culturally now, not Christianly. So I think what happened then, as is true with many corrections, it became an overcorrection. So now you can sit in a Bible study and people will say, like, I don't really feel good about what Paul said there. And I want to say, who cares? <laughs> like, you know, you have a little rumbling of just north of your navel that you don't feel good. Like, that's not the substantive way to come at the world, just your own individual experience. So individualism, to me, is going way out the other way, where what I think and what I feel, what I believe, and what matters to me is really the way the world is. The implication of that is I can't follow the great, the, the commandment summary that Jesus gave. Because if the commandment summary is love God and love others, I need to expend energy, work, sacrifice, show interest in, be curious about the other in order to relate to them well. But if I'm all into myself as an in, with an individualism perspective, I don't really care about your story, Alan. Like you're just there as an opportunity so I can tell my story. Um, and I think there is a deep sense in the culture now where people are quite self-enveloped and really are having trouble relating to the other. The other is a threat. The other is an enemy. The other is a problem. The other gets in the way of what I want. And when that starts to happen, we may think we love God, but we're not loving others. 
Um, and I think this is where Christians and non-Christians or people without any religious background can forget that the, that the love of the other is very much something that flows from the love of God. It's not, it's not a separate thing. This isn't social science. This is core to our spirituality. Now, I imagine that you know, we could go to something like everyone's made in the image of God, therefore we should give them enough respect that their lives should matter to us in su to, to some extent. And yep. so we're giving them, uh, giving them the attention they deserve. Yep. But is there not also, there's a, I find there's a tendency, we don't really believe that that other person, especially that other person, has anything to contribute to my life and maybe the other people around me. Um, this is where I might want to go back to the rumbly in the tummy of the guy in the Bible study, that maybe his ability to articulate what he's thinking uh, isn't very sophisticated, but maybe he's onto something. Yep, yep, absolutely. And we also need to say, tell me more to him. Right. right? So, that, yeah, absolutely. And I also yeah. think this is this is a key with with whatever the reality is to the racial tensions that we we're still grappling with in in the western world and especially in in countries like like Canada which is supposed to be a pluralistic society we have we have the nations are 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 all together in this in one city in the neighborhoods and all the rest um we often don't really believe that other people from other cultures have something to contribute to to life in general and to our lives in, in particular. And it's yeah. only by taking the time to listen to their stories, yeah. that, which includes their perspectives and their opinions and, and all the rest. And maybe yeah. we need to be a little more patient with how they articulate, because people don't necessarily articulate well. Don't, yeah. Most people don't necessarily explain themselves well, but if we say, tell me more, we can get to the bottom of, of where this person is at and what they're really thinking and, and, and all the rest. And I think the cognitive shorthand that we do with people is we say, well, I'll use my example with you. Well, you're Jewish background. So therefore, da, 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 you know, I have a list of things that Jewish people are this, Jewish people are that. What that leads to is all I need to know about you is your socio-cultural political affiliation. And once I know that, I don't need to listen to you anymore. I'm not curious about you. I, I give the example in the book of Lily, uh, the woman in our neighborhood that goes up and down our street with a shopping cart. And every time I drove by her for years, I would just say, there's another homeless person that's poor and has a shopping cart full of stuff. And she probably smells and she probably, you know, I, I have nothing to do with her. I'm a white middle-class male. Why would I talk to her? And then one day it struck me, like, she's creating the image of God. She shares a common humanity. Get out of the car and talk to this woman. She's not a poor person. She's not a homeless person. She's a, So she's Lily. And now we're on a first-name basis. She's Lily. I'm Rod. I buy her Christmas presents. I invite her for Christmas dinner. I give her birthday presents. Um, I don't give money to the poor in caps on streets anymore. I give money to Lily. And what, that, what that's done is it's humanized her and it's mutual. It's what you just said. There's a reciprocal relationship with her because I say, tell me more. I've often wondered where she goes when she goes by my house pushing the shopping cart. And I said, like, so I asked her, where, where do you go when you go down the street? I go to the library. And in my head, I'm going, 
the library. Like I go to libraries. You don't go to, you're a poor person. You don't go to library. But she said, yeah, I like to do research online to find out what's going on in the world. And all my categories are getting blown away because I said, tell me more. And now when we interact together, she tells me more than I tell her. But in the dehumanized, depersonal space where she had no name, no face, no life, no story, I had her all figured out without even talking to her. Um, so that just radically opens up the world in a different way. When people talk about the poor, in my head, I'm thinking Lily, hmm. not the poor. The poor have stories, too. We need to listen to their stories. That is that is so helpful. And, you know, hearing and then reading. And by the way, I a bunch of the book I listened in audio. Okay. And... Uh, we don't have time to get into it. I'd, I'd love to hear about your experience of reading your own book and what that was like. But anyway, so I I read most of it and listened to some of it. Uh, but the uh, the the Lily story is is so challenging. There's that power pack complex thing about about the book, um, and uh, it, it's it's challenging with regard to those categories. What you said about me being a Jewish person, we do it to each other all the time. That person is a this, therefore it means that. But sometimes the Lily people are living in our own home. We've yes. done that with our spouses. We've done that with our children. We think yes. we know them better than they know themselves. You know, yes. we, we got them figured out. And yes. so when they say that, it means this. When they do this, it means that. We got it all figured out and we're not actually listening to them. And we're not saying, tell me more. Yeah, exactly. So this would be a good time to move to, I'm so sorry. <laughs> and uh, it's 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 we, I can laugh at it, but it is it is quite yeah. grievous that we've all done this. Yeah. But the good news is that there's power in uh, in regret and yeah. apologizing. So, um, why do you think apologizing is so hard for people? I'm assuming that that's true. You could tell me I'm wrong. Yeah. Well, I think I would go back to the cultural thread, which I think is very deep in the culture right now, victimization. And victimization, I think the summary phrase of victimization is, uh, it's not my fault. And so we have developed very, very sophisticated ways of explaining why, you know, you may think I hurt you, but actually what really went on here. So I think the three worst words in the English language are, I'm sorry, but... Um, and really what I want to do is justify myself. So I think some of it's the victimization of the culture. I think some of it is the way the culture is going. It's really hard to distinguish what's right and wrong. So, you know, Alan, you say you're hurt by what I said, but actually, you know, that's your problem. That's not my problem because, you know, you've got your stuff and that's why you're feeling the way you are. I didn't do anything wrong. So I think some of it's that. And then I think the other part is the self-deception that we fail to understand that we have the capacity to hurt and help other people. And when we hurt others or when we wound others or we sin against others or we do something wrong towards others, we've got to be honest that that is part of who we are. We're not all positivity and everything's great and everything's wonderful. Sometimes we hurt people and we need to take responsibility for that. But I think you know, philosophically, I think what happens here is we blend and conflate reasons and excuses. 
we think because I have a reason for what I did, then I can excuse that. So, but police officer, I know you think I was speeding, but like I was in a hurry, like, come on. Well, you know, if that was the criteria for not getting a speeding ticket, no one would get a speeding ticket, right? But there, you can have a reason, but it doesn't become an excuse. And I think the whole culture, the milieu of I'm sorry now has become cheap. And the, and the phrase doesn't mean anything anymore. And it's a long way from the biblical word repentance as to what that word even means. Now, there's, I don't know if, you, if I've told you this before, but the difference between Americans and Canadians. Uh, when Americans bump in their carts in the grocery store, uh, they say, get out of my way, buddy. But when yeah. Canadians bump their carts in the grocery store, one says, I'm sorry. And the other person says, no, I'm sorry. What's that? What's that about? What like what kind of I'm sorry is that? Yeah. Well, I think it, it's interesting in Corinthians, Paul talks about godly sorrow and worldly sorrow. And he talks about worldly sorrow leading to death and godly sorrow leading to repentance. And the way I like to paraphrase that is sometimes like I do something wrong to you. And I go, oh, Alan, I'm so, I'm so sorry. Oh, I'm, I'm so. And even the way I'm acting, it's all about me. Like, I feel so terrible what I've done to you. Well, I'm sorry is really a, an exercise of listening of the impact it's had on you and what your story is about this. And then me genuinely understanding the impact I've had. So it, I find it fascinating in the biblical canon, um, you know, Sin isn't sin because, ah, you know, it's sort of inconvenient to do that. It's because of the impact it has on a holy God. And when I understand the impact it has, then it ups my game in terms of I'm sorry or repentance. And so I think often the use of the phrase I'm sorry is a very overly personalized, um, overly self-obsessed approach that doesn't really understand the impact on the other person. I tell the funny story uh, in, of being in a restaurant and the person that I was with, uh, their belt caught on the tablecloth and pulled the tablecloth off the table and, you know, food was falling and wine was spilling and garlic butter was on people's pants and everything. And the person stood there and went, oh, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. It's like, well, pick up the glasses. Like, do like it's still hurting us. Do something about it. Stop being all self-preoccupied about what you did. Engage in a behavior that shows you're going to turn and move in another direction, which is what metanoia, the Greek word, means. I'm committed to moving another way. I'm not sitting there going, oh, I feel so terrible. Um, so I think the distinction there is really important. Otherwise, it becomes what you said. It's a very superficial, uh, you know, I bumped into your cart. I feel bad. But that's not real genuine apology. Yeah. And uh, you're bringing up. Sorry. Press the right button. Um, you, you're bringing up the power of of regret and the power of of true what the Bible calls repentance and that turning around uh, that that's necessary and and it's wonderful that we live in a world that God made where regret means something yeah. and true sorrow means something and true repentance actually means something yeah. and of course ultimately unto God himself, that it, it's such a key thing in coming into right relationship with him, that we acknowledge that we're not, and that's what you said earlier about being a victim and how this victim mentality gets in the way 
of owning our stuff so yeah. then we can offer that proper kind of regret, sorrow, and turnaround that we need to reestablish yeah. relationship. And then with God, with God ultimately, and but then it also works in all these other relationships that the yeah. need to to uh, repent unto others almost in a constant way. Yeah. So we have, we have well, I love the story. I mean, it ties in really well with what you just said, Alan. I love the story in John with the woman taken in adultery at that moment at the end when, you know, Jesus writes on the ground and they all go. The words that Jesus says to the woman is not, how badly do you feel about your adultery? Like, that's not what he says. He And he also doesn't, at least in the biblical record, he may, may have said other things that aren't recorded, but in the biblical record, he doesn't say, let's go back and see the depth of your feeling about what you did. That's not the emphasis. The emphasis is go and sin no more. It's like, whatever it was you were doing before to truly repent is not just a feeling about the past. It's actually a fresh commitment to the future. And so the life of discipleship is actually the life that is built on true repentance. Whereas I think even in the church, I mean, I remember when I became a Christian as a teenager, um, I remember after I didn't think I really had become a Christian because I didn't feel badly enough about my sin. And I tried to whip myself into a frenzy of how bad, you know, I'm 12 years old. Like, how badly can I feel about my sin in the first 12 years? Like, I, I didn't have a lot of terrible feeling. But can you act the, Can you act out that frenzy thing that you were doing? <laughs> no, no, just go on, move on, continue. Tell me more. <laughs> um, I'm not going to say thank you for that question. <laughs> but there oh, was I'm a sorry. sense in which... You know, what I need to focus on is is not just leaving the life of sin, but pursuing the life of discipleship. That's what true repentance is about. Um, so I think we get those all mixed up at times. Okay, so then to start with the first, to end with the first one, um, which seems to work well, thank you, gratitude. Yeah. There too. Um, so I assume most parents teach their children, say thank you, whether they understand or not. That you're yeah. given something you're supposed to say, you know, what do you say? Thank you. Um, where are we at? Where are we at in a society with regard to gratitude? Do you think? Well, I think, um, and I hope I don't get myself in too much trouble in saying this, but there are a number of Christians around who have co-opted the manners sector and have made it Christian to be mannerly. I think that's a travesty in terms of the biblical text, uh, because I don't think you don't read through the 66 books and think I need to be a person who has good manners. Um, you know, and manners are culturally bound, they're ethnically bound, they're language bound. I mean, manners in Turkey are different than manners in Georgia, and manners in Russia are different than manners in Australia. Like it's manners are very much culturally bound, but I think gratitude relates to the fundamental understanding of what grace and mercy are about. And when you understand grace and mercy, you don't walk around with entitlement. And I think that's what's gripping the culture right now is a deep, deep sense of entitlement. And for me, entitlement is best summarized in the phrase, I deserve it. So as, a, as an old guy uh, with gray hair, um, I got a little more than you, it looks like, though. So that's good, even though I'm older than you. Um, I'm sorry. Um, as an old guy, 
when I I'm on the internet or listening to the radio or watching television, all the messages towards me are, you deserve this. You've worked hard your whole life. You deserve a second home. You deserve a holiday. You deserve easy credit. You deserve an increase on your line of credit. And I keep saying to the TV, says who? Like, who says I deserve all this? Well, you've worked hard all your life. Well, that's just kissing grace goodbye. Like, if grace is... I'm, I'm valued and accepted and loved, not because of what I've done, but it's actually been given to me by my relationship with Christ. Then I recognize that I can't strut around and think I deserve. So if we taught our children about entitlement and thank you in an age-appropriate way, I think it would be much, much better. But I think the culture is absorbed in entitlement right now. And marketing and advertising and messages we give each other, it's all about what I deserve and what I'm entitled to. And I just think that's a faulty way to live and will not bring a sense of gratitude in your life. So so giving thanks, be it to God or other people, is actually an expression of the reality of the situation that we don't, we don't, we don't create our opportunities. We don't we, we might think we're providing for ourselves, but even if you look at uh, in a naturalistic way, uh, if the if the rain doesn't doesn't rain and the sun doesn't shine and the and the plants don't grow, there's no food for anybody. And so all that we have actually comes out from outside of ourselves. and yeah. none of us borned ourselves. we yeah. we all entered the world not based on our own wills. And then, and this we can fall into the victimization thing, but the victimization thing, I guess, leads right into the entitlement thing. So if, if, if things have not gone your way, you're a victim. And if things have really gone your way, it's like, oh, it's, it's what I've done. But it's all phony yeah. uh, that we are, we are actually, um, I learned this from my wife. She talks about everyone is God's good idea. And yeah. every child that was ever born is God's good idea. And we were brought into this world and all we really are recipients. And I I think what what you're sharing in the stories in this book are are emphasizing these three key things that are are necessary for uh, a proper perspective on life. Yeah, yeah. And if we're looking out for that, if we're observant in terms of what you just said, you know, your, your mantra on your podcast, you know, all of the Bible for all of life. Like I tell the story about going into public restrooms and washrooms over the years and seeing people clean toilets and mop the floors and everything. And my attitude was one of entitlement. Well, of course, as a middle-class white male, of course I deserve these toilets to be cleaned for me. Why would I thank them? Like I deserve this. And then I realized, why can you not thank people for being cleaning streets or cleaning toilets? So when I go to a toilet now or into a washroom or restroom, I, I thank the person, say, thank you for your service. I appreciate that. Some of them nearly fall over with a cardiac arrest that anyone's thanking them. But for me to act like I deserve somebody to to clean my toilets, that's going to spill into all sorts of areas of life, right? I'm going to just have an attitude that everything that's done for me, I deserve. And of course, that lovely construct of grace and mercy, grace, I'm getting what I don't deserve and mercy, I'm not getting what I do deserve, right? And if you have grace and mercy as your backdrop for living, then you will say thank you because you know it's all gift. Uh, one of the things we have here in Ottawa is uh, we have a lot of snow in, in the winter and 
I don't have the stats, but I think we had a, a more than normal snowy winter and there's still a lot of snow on the ground, even though it's starting to finally warm up. You live in Vancouver. You shouldn't even be listening. Um, and I know you used to be in the, in, in these parts, but you guys, cause we live in Vancouver, we forget when we're there, but anyway, so, uh, where we live, like a lot of the suburban areas of Ottawa, there's a lot of these pathways, you know, the catwalks, we call them, where there's pathways between houses, that there's connection to parks and things and all these pathways. And besides um, the, the city clearing the streets with the big plows and clearing sidewalks with the small plows, they actually clear the paths and they salt the paths and um, they don't... Well, I'm even surprised at the kind of priority they sometimes give them because people need them. They need to get to bus stops and, and all the rest. And every time I encounter these cleared paths, I gratitude wells up. There's just something in me goes, the city doesn't need to do this. This isn't a have to. It makes sense to do it. But the fact that in their system of snow removal, they included this service to our citizens, we pay for it. But again, they don't have to do it, but they yeah. do. And one year I did, I sent off a message. Um, and it's partly, it's something I learned from my wife's father. He would um, commend good service in a restaurant or in a store, and he would write letters of commendation. And what a wonderful lesson that is. And then you realize how much that means to those people that hardly ever get thanked for what they do. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And so and it requires a commitment to observe your world as it is, like view the world with a real lens. And by that, I mean a deeply Christian lens and recognize the gratitude, it, the potential to express gratitude is all around us. I mean, all of the people watching today, they're going to run into something in the next two hours for which they could say thank you if they're observant. That's right. And with that, let me express my gratitude to you for taking this time to have this conversation with me and with everyone else. And I want to encourage everyone to, to get a copy of Thank You, I'm Sorry, Tell Me More by Rod Wilson. It's available at Amazon or any good bookstore. And if if you walk into a bookstore and they don't have it with an attitude of gratitude, ask them to order it for you. They'll probably say, I'm sorry, and something like that. And then, and all the rest. So um, I'm looking forward to more, tell me more. Hopefully we can do this, this sort of thing again. But again, let me thank you for doing this. Thank you, Alan. It's, uh, I say this genuinely, it's always lovely to be engaged in a conversation with you because we always use tell me more. Tell me more. No, thank you. So until next time. So uh, again, go out, get Rod's book, order online, however, however you get your books. Um, remember, you can always contact me at comments at thinkingbiblically.org. If you haven't done so yet, please subscribe uh, to my YouTube channel. This is Alan Gilman with Thinking Biblically. <laughs>